welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the podcast, day two of Hail and Farewell. We started AV, Ave, the Overture. We read the first half of it, and all I could say was yikes. Yikes, I mean, this is, this is, this is going to be a slog, I think. Swim says the mama fishy, says yikes indeed. It's day two, and we have yet to get to the actual volume one. A-V, pronounced av. Thank you. Uh, if the book continues in this style of writing, it's going to be a slog for me. It's working that you're including the text here, since there's no easy chapter breaks, and I hope it's not too annoying. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, I don't mind posting the, the full text here. Um, it works for me. Edward Martin, some fun facts. 1870, uh, sorry, 1859 to 18... Oh, my gosh. Edward Martin, 1859 to 1923, was an Irish playwright, an early Republican politician and cultural activist, first president of Siphine. Um He was also George's cousin. Um, Sinn Féin, or Gaelic for We Ourselves, was founded to promote the cultural revival and political independence of Ireland. Ether Waters and Modern Painting are books by George, initially published respectively 1894 and 1891. Uh, Castle Cara is a hall house and national monument located in County Mayo, Ireland. The Moore Estate was located in County Mayo. Interestingly, I could find no paintings by Van der Meer in the National Gallery collections. Mount Venus is a megalithic site. It encompasses a massive capstone weighing in at 44 tonnes. It is a partly collapsed on itself, on its supports, and overgrown. The capstone lies against a single large upright megalith. A megalith is a large stone that has been used to construct a prehistoric structure or monument, either alone or together with other stones. There are over uh, 35,000 in Europe alone, located widely from Sweden to the Mediterranean Sea. Thinking of the Hawkstone... The, uh, what's that famous one in England as well? Um, Stonehenge, that kind of thing. Howth is an Irish village. Cromlech is a circle made of stones, Stonehenge. We learned about Irish literary revival during Book of Verse, but to refer for fresh and around's memory, uh, there's a Wikipedia for Celtic revival. All right. You know, oh man, I should be well versed in all this stuff by now. But um, I just find it hard to absorb, hard to, um, I don't know, keep the timelines and the, the movements all in line in my head and what they all meant and what they all were. So, you know, I don't know. I'm going to struggle. Thank you, Swim, for all that. Uh, also in Dubliners, says Techrific, we learnt about the Irish literary revival, where the Celtic revival was featured in several of the short stories. So you'd think I'd remember that as well. Um, Swim says the mum fishy says, I looked at the archives. We read Dubliners from January two thousand. Oh, sorry, January seventeenth, two thousand and nineteen. To February of 2019. That's four years ago, people. Oh. What's, what is it? 20, 21, 22. 
Far out. Yeah, I know. And that's not even the start of this journey for me. I did War and Peace for the year before that. If the book continues in this style, it'll be a slog. I was oppositely surprised. It was actually entertaining, says Tegrific. The dialogue was humorous and quick pace. I actually really liked it. Well, that's good. Um, Swim says, I read a little ahead and the first few pages of the actual book were fun. Much more crisp and clean. The intro and overture had me left puzzled why Hemingway had it on the list. Acoustic Eel says, thank God, if he took that long to make a preamble about renting the perfect house in which to write the book, it was not hopeful, the rest of it. I was like, all this backstory better be really important to the plot. Oh, well, that's my thoughts exactly, Acoustic Eels. I feel like I was reading for half an hour straight, and to sum it up, it's like he rented a place. And I'm like, how did he make that? How did he expand that into you know, 15 pages of text. It was incredible. Um, but, um, as Swim rightly points out, we haven't even reached, you know, chapter one of the actual book yet, so still too early to judge. We haven't even finished this overture. So, let us return to um, George in Ireland, renting the perfect place in which to write this book. Um, now, you know, as I find my place here, I'll say this as well. Like, last night, I was thinking, after a month off, you know, I'm very busy with work at the moment. More than I have been, really, since I started this daily podcast thing. Um... And that's been for the last six months or so that I've been more, way more busy with work. I got a new job six months ago and it's just a little bit more full on, but that's been okay because we'd been doing the poetry and the poetry was taking me, you know, five minutes per night so I could handle that. But this taking an extra half an hour, 40 minutes, you know, every night at least, you know, um, and with the extra work with my new job and with a baby. Oh, I'm just like, man, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if the extra tiredness and carving that time out of my day is worth it. But as I say that, and I think, wow, this journey started more than five years ago for me. And we're here at the last book. I mean, I've got to finish it, don't I? I've just got to. Can't tap out now. So we push on. Now, as I say that, there's a baby crying in the next room, which I must tend to, so I'm going to press pause, and I'll be back in a second. Okay, I'm back. Uh, And Toby's here too. He's half asleep in my arms. That seems to be the norm. Um, All right, let's continue. I let her go and wander with her. She had advised me to the Cromlick, one of the grandest in Ireland. I could not miss it, she had said. I'd find it if I followed the path around the hill in the beach dell. A great rock laid upon three upright stones, one had fallen lately, and in the words of a shepherd, I'd consulted the altar without a repair. Even druid altars do not survive the 19th century in Ireland, I answered, and still lingered. Hey, hey. <laughs> Stop it. He's reaching up and grabbing the microphone. <clears throat> Aren't you? Cheeky. 
Even Druid altars do not survive the 19th century in Ireland, I answered, and still lingering detained by the ancient stones, my thoughts returned to her whom an artist had painted as Diana the Huntress, a man of some talent, for he had painted her in an attitude that atoned to some extent for the poverty of the painting. Or was it she who gave him the attitude leaning on her bow? Was it she who settled the folds about her limbs and decided it, the turn of her head, and the eyes looking across the greensward towards the target? Had she fled with somebody whom she had loved dearly and been deserted and cast away on that hillside? Does the house belong to her, or is she the caretaker? Does she live there with a servant, or alone, cooking her own dinner? None of my questions would be answered, and I invented story after story to explain her as I returned through the grey evening, in which no star appeared, only a red moon rising up through the woods like a fire in the branches. My single meeting with this woman happened twenty-five years ago, and it is more than likely she is now dead, and the ruins among which she lived are probably a quarry whence the peasants go to fetch stones to build their cottages. Many of the beech trees have been felled. Mount Venus has passed away, never to be revived again, but enough of its story is remembered to fill a corner of the book I am dreaming, no more than that. For the book I am dreaming is a man's book, and it should be made of the life that lingered in Mayo till the end of the sixties, landlords, their retainers, and serfs. At these words, in the middle of the temple, a scene rose up before me of a pack of harriers, or shall I say wild dogs, running into a hare on a bleak hillside and far away showing faintly on a pale line of melancholy mountains a horse rising up in the act of jumping, and on and on came horse and rider over stone wall after stone wall till stopped by a wall so high that no horse could jump it, so I thought. The gate of the park was miles away, so the hounds had time not only to devour the hare they had killed but to eat many a rabbit. Surrounding the furs, they drove the rabbits this way and that, the whole pack working in concert, as wild dogs might, and the whip, all the while, talking to a group of countrymen until the hunt began to appear. I must be getting to my hounds now, and picking up the snaffle rein, he drove the pony at the wall, who, at, to the admiration of the group, rose at it, kicking it with her hind hooves, landing in style among the hounds, quarrelling over bits of skin and bone. The wild huntsman blew his horn, and gathering his hounds round him, said to me, before putting his pony again at the wall, a great little pony, isn't she? And what's half a dozen of rabbits between twenty-two couple of hounds? It'll only give them an appetite, though they've always that. But Dad, if they weren't the most intelligent hounds in the country, it's dead long ago they'd be of hunger. Do you know of an old jackass, he said, turning to a countryman, if you do, you might have a shilling for bringing him. You can have the skin back, if you like, to come for it. By this time, all the field were up. The master, florid and elderly, and a quarrel began between him and the huntsman, whom he threatened to sack in the morning for not being up with the hounds. Wasn't there six foot of a wall between us, and they as hungry as hawks? But if the pony was able to leap the wall, why didn't you ride her at, at once? And so I did, Your Honour, and the countrymen were called and they testified. Well, Pat, you must be up in time to get the next hair from them, for if you don't, it's myself and Johnny Malone 
that we'll be drinking our punch on empty bellies, which isn't good for any man, and away went the master in search of his dinner over the grey plain, under rolling clouds, threatening rain, the hounds trying the patches of furs for another hare, and the field a dozen huntsmen with a lady amongst them waiting, talking to each other about their horses. I could see Pat pressing his wonderful pony forward, on the alert for stragglers, assuring Balringer with a terrific crack of his whip, that he was not likely to find a hare where he was looking for one, and must get into the furs instantly, and then I caught a glimpse of the ragged peasantry following the hunt over the plains of Ballyglass, just as they used to follow it, a fierce wind thrilling in their shaggy chests, and they speaking Irish to each other, calling to the master in English. A place must be found, I said to myself, in my story for that pack of hounds, for its master, for its whip, and for the marvellous pony, and for a race meeting, whether at Bolinrobe or Broy or Castlebar, Castlebar for preference. The horde of peasantry would look well amid the line of hills enclosing the plain. Old men in knee breeches and tall hats, young men in trousers, cattle dealers in great overcoats, reaching to their heels, wearing broad-brimmed hats, everybody with a broad Irish grin on his face, and everybody with his blackthorn. Of a sudden, I could see a crowd gathered to watch a bucking chestnut, a sixteen-hand horse with a small boy in pink upon his back. Now the horse hunches himself up till he seems like a hillock. His head is down between his legs. His hind legs are in the air, but he doesn't rid himself of his burden. He plunges forward. He rises up, coming down again, his head between his legs, and the boy, still unstirred, recalls the ancient dream of the centaur. Bedad! He's the greatest rider in Ireland, a crowd of tinkers and peasants are saying. The tinkers hurrying up to see the sport retiring hurriedly at the horse plunges in their direction, running great danger of being kicked. So did I remember the scene as I walked about the temple that moonlit night, the very words of the tinkers chiming in my head after many years. Isn't he a devil? cries one. It's in the circus he ought to be. Mickey was near off that time, cries another, and while that great fight was waged between horse and jockey, my father rode up, crying to the crowd to disperse, threatening that if the course was not cleared in a few minutes, he would ride in amongst them, and he on a great bay stallion. I'll ride in amongst you, you'll get kicked, you'll get kicked. Even at the distance of time I can feel the very pang of fear which I endured, lest the horse my father was riding should kick some peasant and kill him. For, even in those feudal days, a peasant's life was considered of some value. And the horse my father rode quivered with excitement and impatience. Get back, get back, or there will be no racing today. And you, Mickey Ford, if you can't get that horse to the post, I'll start without you. Give him his head and put the spurs into him thrash him, and taking my father at his word, Mickey raised his whip, and down it came, sounding along the golden hide. The horse bounded higher, and but without getting any nearer to unseating his rider, and away they went towards the starting point, my father crying to the jockeys that they must get into line, telling Mickey that if he didn't walk his horse to the post he would disqualify him, and Mickey, swearing that his horse was unmanageable, 
and my father swearing that the jockey was touching him on the off side of his spur. It seemed to me my father was very cruel to the poor boy whose horse wouldn't keep quiet. A moment after they were galloping over the rough fields, bounding over the stone walls, the ragged peasantry rebuilding the walls for the next race, waving their sticks running from one corner of the field to another, and no one thinking at all of the melancholy line of wandering hills enclosing the plain. A scene to be included in the novel I was dreaming, and for the moment my father appeared to me as the principal character, but only for a moment something much rougher, more Irish, more uncouth, more Catholic, was required. My father was a Catholic, but only of one generation, and to produce the more Catholic several are necessary. The hero of my novel must be sought and found among the Catholic end of my family, a combination of sportsman and cattle dealer. Andy on his grey mare, careering after the blazes, rolling about like a sack in a saddle, but always leading the field, tempted me until my thoughts were suddenly diverted by a remembrance of a Curragh meeting with Dan, who had brought up a crack from Galway and was going to break the ring. Dan, aren't you going to see your horse run? cried I. He'll run the same whether I'm looking at him or not, and Dan, in his long yellow Macintosh, hurrying through the bookies, rose up in my mind as true and distinct and characteristic of Ireland as the poor woman I had discovered among the Dublin mountains. She had fixed herself on my mind as she was in a single moment. Dan, I had seen many times in all kinds of different circumstances, all the same, it is in his Macintosh at the Curra meeting on his way to the urinal that I remember him in his tall silk hat. Everyone wore a tall silk hat at the Curra in the 70s, but Dan was only half himself in a hat, for whoever saw him remembers the long white skull over which he trailed a lock of black hair, the long skull which I have inherited from my mother's family, and the long pale face and his hands were like mine, long, delicate female hands. One of Dan's sisters had the most beautiful hands I ever saw. He'll run the same, whether I'm looking at him or not, and Dan laughed craftily, for crafty and innocency were mingled strangely in his face. Dan had a sense of humour, or did I mistake a certain naturalness for humour? Be that as it may, when I was in Galloway, I was often tempted to ride over to see him. It will be difficult to get him on a pa- onto paper, I reflected. His humour will not transpire if I am not very careful, for though I may just transcribe the very words he uttered, they will mean little on paper unless I get this atmosphere, the empty house and Dunamon, the stables about it filled with racehorses, most of them broken down. No four legs ever stood more than two years training over the rough fields which Dan called his race course. A four-year-old with back sinews and suspensory ligaments sound really stood in the Dunnerman stables. A chaser or two per chance. All the same, Dan did not lose money on the turf. A stroke of luck kept him going for a long time, and these strokes of luck happened every five or six years. Every five or six years he would arrive at the Curra with a two-year-old, which, on account of its predecessor's failures, would be quoted on the list at ten to one. Dan knew how to back him quietly. His backing was done surreptitiously, without taking anyone into his confidence, not even his cousins. It was no use going to Dunamon to ask him questions. The only answer one ever got was, 
There he is, quite well, but whether he can gallop or not, I can't tell you. I've nothing to try him with. There he is. Go and look at him. At the post he might advise us to give, to put a fiver on him, if he wasn't in too great of a hurry. Is your money on him, Dan? One of his cousins cried. Dan turned only to say, it's all right. And from his words we guessed, and guessed rightly, that the horse had been backed to win seven or eight thousand pounds, enough to keep the Dunham and establishment going for the next four or five years. As soon as a horse broke down, he was let loose on Lugafuoka, the rocky headland, where the cracks of yesteryear picked up a living as best they could. He treated his horses as the master of the harriers treated his hounds, intelligent animals who could be counted upon to feed themselves. He loved them too in his own queer way, for he never made any attempt to sell them, knowing that the only use they could be put to after he had finished with them... Uh, would be to draw cabs, and though food was scarce in Lugafuoka in winter, they were probably happier there than they would have been in a lively livery stable. Only once did Dan sell his horses. My brother, the colonel, succeeded in buying three from him, any three you like, Dan said, at £25 apiece. At that time, Lagafuoka was full of wild horses, and the colonel's story is that he only just escaped being eaten, which is probably an exaggeration, but he chose three, and his choice was successful. How many may race? He, sorry, he won many races, but I must keep to my own story. I had wandered around the church of the Templars, and after admiring the old porch and the wigmaker's shop and the cloister turned into Pump Court, up there aloft... Edward was sleeping, then, leaving Pump Court, I found my way through a brick passage to a seat under the plain trees in Fountain Court, and I sat there waiting for Simons, who returned home generally about one. The temple clock clanged out the half-hour, and I said, tonight, he must be sleeping out, and continued my memories, to the tune of water dripping, startled now and then by the carp, plunging in the silence, recollecting suddenly that the last time I went to Dunnerman, Dan was discovered by me before an immense peat fire burning in an open grate. The chimney piece had fallen some time ago, one of the marbles had been broken, and in it and it was difficult to replace the slab. No mason in the country could undertake the job, all the skilled workmen had gone out of the country, he said, but one did not discuss the evils of emigration with Dan, knowing what his answer would be. As long, he would say, as the people want to go to America, they'll go, and when America is out of fashion, they'll stay at home. There will always be enough people here for me. On one occasion, when I rode over to Dunnerman to get news of what horses Dan was going to run at the next meeting of the Carrar, Bridget opened the door to me. The master is not in the house, she said, but if you'll wait in the drawing room, I'll go and find him for you. I would have preferred to go round to the stables to seek Dan myself. He was generally to be found in the stables, but not wishing to distress Bridget, I walked into the room and my eyes went at once to the piano on which his sisters had played and to the pictures he they had admired. The room was empty, cheerless, dilapidated, but it was strangely clean for a room in the charge of an Irish peasant in Bridget's class. I shall speak of her anon. Now I must speak of the two pictures of dogs going after birds, reddish dogs with long ears, for I used to detest them when I was a child, why I never knew. 
they seemed foolish. Now they seemed merely quaint, and I wondered at my former aversion. Under one of them stood the piano, a grand, made in the beginning of the 19th century. The Virgin's Prayer lay still on the top of a heap of music unlocked into by Dan, for when he touched a piano it was to play his memories of operas heard long ago in his youth. No doubt he often turned for refreshment to his piano after an excellent dinner cooked by Bridget, who, when she had done washing up, would appear in the ne- in the drawing room, for she was not confined to the bedroom and the kitchen. Dan was a human fellow who would not keep his mistress unduly in the kitchen, and I can see Bridget bringing her knitting with her and her Dan and hear Dan playing to her until overtaken by love or weariness. He would cease to strum Treviata or Trevatore and go to her. Nobody ever witnessed this scene, but it must have happened just as I tell it. A pretty girl Bridget certainly was, and one that any man would have liked to kiss, and one whom I should have liked to have kissed had I not been prevented by a prejudice. We are all victims of prejudice of one kind or another, and as the prejudice which prevented me from kissing Bridget inclines towards those which are regarded as virtues, I will tell the reader that the reason I refrained from kissing Dan's mistress was because it was always been the tradition in the West that my family never yielded to such indulgences as peasant mistresses or the assurances of hot punch. Nobody but Archbishop Michael was allowed to punch was allowed punch in my father's house. The common priests who dined there at election times had the lap claret, and proud of my father's fortitude, I refrained from Bridget. But if you respect your family so much, why do you lift the veil on Dan's frailties? I often asked myself the answer my heart gave back was, if I did not do so, I should not think of Dan at all. And what we all dread most is to be forgotten. If I don't write about him, I shall not be able to forget the large sums of money I lost by being put on the wrong horses. I am sure he would like to make amends for me for those losses, and the only way he can do this now is by giving me sittings. His brother and sisters will no doubt think my portrait in bad taste, the prejudices of our time being that a man's frailties should not be written about. It is difficult to understand why a mistress would be looked upon as a frailty, and writing about the sin more grievously than the sin itself. These are questions which might be debated till morning, and as it is very nearly morning now, it will be well to leave their consideration to some later time and to decide at once that Dan shall become a piece of literature in my hands. It is no part of my morality to urge that nobody's feelings should be regarded if the object be literature. But I would ask why one set of feelings should be placed above another, why the feelings of my relations should be placed above Dan's, for if Dan were in a position to express himself now, who would dare to say that he would like his love of Bridget to be forgotten? There is nothing more human, as as Pater remarks, than the wish to be remembered for some years after death, and Dan was essentially a human being, and Bridget was a human being, so why should I defraud them of an immortality opened up to them by a chance word spoken by Edmund Martin in his garret in Pump Court? If my cousins complain, I'll answer them. We see things from different sides. You, from a Catholic, I, from a literary. What a side of life to choose, I hear them saying, and myself answering Dan's love of Bridget was what was best in him and what was most 
like him. It is in this preference that Dan is above you, for alone among you he sought beauty. Bridget was a pretty girl, and beauty in a woman is all that a man like Dan could be expected to seek. Whoever amongst you has bought an impressionist picture, or a pre-Raphaelite picture, let him cast first a stone. But not one of you ever bought any object because you thought it beautiful. So leave me to tell Dan's story in my own way. His love of Bridget I hold in higher esteem than Matt's desire during the last ten years of his life to buy himself a seat in heaven in the front row, a desire which, by the way, cost him many hundreds a year. At that moment a leaf floated down and, forgetful of my tail, I looked up into the tree, admiring the smooth stem, the beautiful growth, the multitudinous leaves above me, and the leaf in my hand, enough light came through the branches for me to admire the pattern so wonderfully designed, and I said, how intense life seems here in this minute, yet in a few years my life in the temple will have passed, will have become as dim as those years of Dan's life in Dunaman. But are these years dim or merely distant? A carp splashed in the fountain basin. How foolish that fish would think me if he could think at all. Wasting my time sitting here thinking of Dan instead of going to bed. But being a human being and not a carp, and Dan being a side of humanity which appealed to me, I continued to think of him and Bridget. Dead days rising up in my mind one after the other. I had gone to Mayo to ride a mama's wife, and Dan had lent me a riding horse, a great black beast with no shoulders, but good enough to ride after a long morning's work, and the rumour having reached me that something had gone wrong with one of his cracks, I rode over to Dunnerman. The horse was restive and seventeen hands high, so I did not venture to dismount, but hallowed it outside, and receiving no answer, rode round the stables and inquired for the master of every stableman and jockey without getting a satisfactory answer. Everyone seemed reticent. The master had gone to Dublin, said one. Another slinking away mentioned he was thinking of going, perhaps he had gone, and seeing they did not wish to answer, I called to one, slung myself out of the saddle and walked into the kitchen. Well, Bridget, how are you today? Well, thank you, sir. What's this I'm hearing in the stables about the master going to Dublin? Ah, you've been hearing that, and a smile lit up Bridget's pretty eyes. Isn't it true? Bridget hesitated, and I added, is it that he doesn't want to see me? Indeed, sir, he's always glad to see you and my curiosity excited, I pressed her. It's just that he don't want to be showing himself to everybody. To deceive her, my face assumed a grave air. No trouble with the tenants, I hope, nothing of that sort. The people are quiet enough round here. Well, Bridget, I've always thought you were a pretty girl. Tell me, what has happened? And to lead her further, I said, but you and the master are just as good friends as ever, aren't you? Nothing to do with you, Bridget, I'd be sorry. With me, sir? Sure, it isn't from me he'd be hiding in the garden. Unless, Bridget, he's beginning to grow holy like Mr. Matt, who is a very holy man up in Dublin now, wearing a white beard, never going out except to chapel, far too repentant for the priest, who, it is said, would be glad to get rid of him. How is that, sir? He cries out in the middle of Mass that God may spare his soul, interrupting everybody else's prayers, I never liked that sort of thing myself, Bridget, and have never understood how God could be pleased with a man for sending his children and their mother to America. You know of whom I'm talking. 
Bridget did not answer for a while, and when I repeated my question, she said, Of course I do, of Ellen Ford. Yes, that is of whom I'm thinking. And then, looking round to see if anybody was within hearing, she told me how two of Mr. Matt's sons had come back from America, bothering Mr. Dan for their father's address. Two fine young fellows, the two of them as tall as Mr. Matt himself, and to escape from his nephews, the master locks himself up in the garden, excellent security, in eighteen feet of a wall. But didn't they get into the trees, Mr. Matt's two big sons, and Mr. Dan, never suspecting it, walked underneath them, and then it was that they gave him the length and the breadth of their tongues and the whole stable listening. The smile died out of her eyes, and fearing that one day her lot might be Alan Ford's, Bridget said, wouldn't it be more natural for Mr. Matt to have married Ellen and made a good wife of her than sending her to America and her sons coming back to bother Mr. Dan? It was a cruel thing, Bridget. That's always the way, Bridget answered, and she moved a big saucepan from one side of the range to the other. You'll find him in the garden if you knock three times. I'll go and fetch him presently. Will you be staying to dinner, sir? That depends on what you're cooking. A pair of boiled ducks today. Boiled ducks? Don't you like them boiled? You won't be saying anything against my cooking if you stay to dinner, will you? Not a word against your cooking. Excellent cooking, Bridget. And as she busied herself about the range, thinking of the ducks boiling in the saucepan, or thinking of what her fate would be if Dan died before making a, a good wife of her, I studied the swing of her hips, still shapely, but at thirty a peasant's figure begins to tell of the hard work she has done, and as she bent over the range, I noticed that she wore a little more apron string than she used to wear. The return of Matt's two sons from America seemed to have made her a little anxious about her own future. Any day, I said, another girl may be brought up from the village, and then Bridget will be seen less frequently upstairs. She'll receive ten or twelve pounds a year for cleaning and cooking, and perhaps after a little while drift away like a piece of broken furniture into the outhouses. That will be her fate, unless she becomes my cousin, and the possibility of finding myself suddenly related to Bridget caused a little pensiveness to come into my walk. It was not necessary that Dan should marry her, but he should make her a handsome allowance if some years of damned hard work, luck on the turf should compel him to marry his neighbour's daughter. Enlarged suspensory ligaments have made many marriages into Mayo and Galloway, and I went about the temple remembering that when was going to marry, Dash, the bride's relations, had gathered round the fire to decide the fate of the peasant girl and her children. They were all at sixes and sevens until a pious old lady muttered, let him emigrate them, whereupon they rubbed their shins complacently, but Bridget was not put away. Dan died in her arms. After that, her story becomes legendary. It has been said that she remained at the Dunnerman and washed and cooked and scrubbed for the next of kin and wore her life away there as a humble servant at the smallest wage that could be afforded to her. And it has been said that she made terms with the next of kin and got a considerable sum from him and went to America and keeps a boarding house in Chicago. And I have heard too that she ended her days in the workhouse, a little crumpled ruin amid other ruins, every one with her own story. Bridget is a type in the west of Ireland, and I have known so many that perhaps I am confusing one story with another. For the purpose of my book, any one of these endings would do. 
The best would perhaps be a warm cottage, a pleasant thatch, a garden, hollyhocks and beehives. In such a cottage I can see Bridget, an old woman, but the end of a life is not a thing that can be settled at once walking about in moonlight for what seems true then may seem fictitious next day. And already Dan and Bridget had begun to seem a little too trite and respectable for my purpose. When he came to be written out, Dan would differ little from the characters to be found in Lever and Lover. They would have served him up with the usual sauce, a sort of restaurant gravy which makes everything taste alike, whereas painted by me, Dan would get into something like reality. He would attain a certain dignity. But a rougher being would suit my purpose better, and I fell to thinking of one of Dan's airlings, Carmody, hirelings, sorry, Carmody, a poacher, the most notorious in Mayo and Galloway, and so wary that he escaped convictions again and again, and when Dan appointed him as gamekeeper, there was no further use to think about bringing him for trial. For wasn't Dan on the bench? Carmody shot and fished over what land and what rivers he pleased. My friends grouse, woodcock, snipe, wild duck, teal, widgeon, hares and rabbits went to Dunnerman, and during the composition of a mummer's wife, when my palate longed for some change from beef and mutton, I had to invite Carmody to shoot with me or eat my dinner at Dunnerman. He knew where ducks went by in the evening, and Carmody never fired without bringing down his bird, a real poaching shot and a genial companion, full of stories of the country. It is regrettable that I did not put them into my pocketbook at the time, for if I had, I should be able now to write a book original in every line. The old wood ranger looked at me askance when I brought Carmody from Dunnerman to shoot over my friend's lands, the worst man that ever saw daylight, he would say. I pressed him to tell me of Carmody's misdeeds, and he told me many, but at this distance of time it is difficult to recall the tales I heard of Carmody's life among the mountains, trapping rabbits and setting springs of woodcocks, going down to the village at night, battering indoors, saying he must have a sheaf of straw to lie on. We used to row out to the islands and wait, lie waiting for the ducks until they came in from the marshes, and those cold hours Carmody would while away with stories of the wrongs that he had been done to him, and the hardships he had endured before he found a protector in Dan, the wood ranger, and looking into his... The account he gave of himself differed a good deal from the one which I heard from the wood ranger, and looking into his pale eyes I often wondered if it were true that he used to entice boys into the woods, and when he had led them far enough, turn upon them savagely, beating them, leaving them for dead. Why should he commit such devilry? I often ask myself, without discovering any reason, except that finding the world against him, he thought he might as well have a blow at the world when he got the chance. Many a poor girl was sorry she ever met with him, a wood ranger would say, and I asked him how, if he were such a wild man, girls would follow him into the woods. Them tramps always have a following, and he told me a story he had heard from a boy in the village, a knocking at the door had waked the boy, and he lay quaking, listening for his young sister, telling Carmody it was too late to let him in. But Carmody caught a hold of her and dragged her out through the door, so the boy told me, and he heard them going down the road, Carmody crying, Big gob, I've seen that much of you that you'll be no use to anybody else. And what became of the girl, did he marry her? Sorrow marry, he sold her to a tinker, 
it is said to the one who used to play the pipes. I thought you said he was a tinker, so he was, but he used to play the pipes in the dancing houses on a Sunday night till one night Father O'Farrell got out of his bed, walked across the bog and pushed open the door without a by your leave or with your leave, and making straight for the old tinker in the corner, snatched the pipes from him and threw them on the floor and began dancing upon them himself, and them squeaking all the time, and he saying every time he jumped on them, Ah, the devil is in them still, do you hear him roaring? I closed my eyes a little and licked my lips as I walked, thinking of the pleasure it would be to tell this story and to tell it in this place. The priest would have to be a friend of the family that lived in the big house, and he would perhaps come up to teach the children Latin, or they might go to him. Dan and his lass were typical of a Catholic island, tainted through and through with peasantry. True that every family begins with a peasant. It rises when it rises through its own genius. The cross is the worst stock of all, the pure decadent, but he must come into the book. Never was there such a subject, I said, as the one I am dreaming, Dan, Bridget, Carmody, and his friends, the Tinkers. With these it should be possible to write something that would be read as long as... And while thinking of a simple where within to express the durability of the book, I remembered that Ireland had not been seen by me for many years, and to put the smack in mere mortality upon it, it would be necessary to live in Ireland in a cabin in the West. Only in that way could I learn the people, become intimate with them again. The present is an English-speaking generation, or very nearly, so Edward told me mine was an Irish-speaking, the workman that came up from the village to the big house, spoke it always, and the boatmen on the lake whispered it over their oars to my annoyance until, at last, the temptation came along to learn it, and the memory of that day floated up like a wraith from the lake. The two boatmen and myself, they anxious to teach me the language, a decisive day for Ireland, for if I had learned the language from the boatmen, it would have been easy to do so then. A book would have been written about Carmody and the Tinker, they would have set all Europe talking, and the novel dreamed in the temple by me, written in a new language, or in a language revived, would have been a great literary event, and the Irish language would now be a flourishing concern. Now it is too late. That day on Lough Curragh, its fate was decided, unless indeed genius awakens in one of the islanders off the coast where Edward tells me only Irish is spoken. If such a one were to write a book about his island, he would rank it above all living writers, and he would be known for evermore as the Irish Dante. But the possibility of genius completely equipped arising in the Aran Islands seemed a little remote. To quote that very trite mutton-chop-whiskered gentleman, Matthew Arnold, not only the man is required, but the moment. The novel dreamed that night in the temple could not be written by an Aran Islander, so it will never be written for a lass. The impulse in me to redeem Ireland from obscurity was not strong enough to propel me from London to Holyhead, and then into a steamboat and across Ireland to Galloway, whence I should take a hooker whose destination was some fishing harbour in the Atlantic. No, it was not strong enough, and nothing is more depressing than the conviction that one is not a hero, and feeling that I was not the predestined hero who Kathleen Nihulhilhan had been waiting for through the centuries, I fell to sighing, not for Kathleen Nihulhilhan's sake, but for my own. Till my senses stiffening a little with sleep, thoughts began to repeat themselves. Often men are sad because their wives and mistresses are ill, or because they die, or because there has been a fall in consoles, because their names have not appeared in a list of newly created peers, 
baronets and knights, but the man of letters, my energy for that evening, was exhausted, and I was too weary to try to remember what Dorogenin had said on the subject. A chill came into the air, corresponding exactly with the chill that had fallen upon my spirit. The silence grew more intense and grey, and all the buildings stood stark and ominous. Out of such stuff as Ireland dreams are made, I haven't thought of Ireland for ten years, and tonight in an hour's space I have dreamed Ireland from end to end. When shall I think of her again? In another ten years? That will be time enough to think of her again. And on these words I climbed the long stone stairs leading to my garret. And that's the end of the overture. Alright, well, looking forward to starting the actual book tomorrow. It's like an hour's worth of chapter just before, just to lead into the start of the book. Jesus. Can you imagine an author in in a modern setting being that, I don't know, pretentious? To be like, hey, I know you're interested in reading my book, but first, here's an hour of introduction. Anyway, let's see how we go. See you tomorrow.